Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Dr. B.J. Miller. B.J. is a palliative care physician who is, without exaggeration, changing the way we think about and conceptualize death. His vision, his message have been captured during what is a meteoric rise. He's been featured recently in New York Times Magazine. He's been on Oprah Winfrey's show. He has a TED Talk that's been viewed almost 6 million times. And these features also capture his amazing story. He survived a catastrophic electrocution many years ago that actually left him as a triple amputee. He survived all of that, and he has really emerged now as one of the world's leaders in the discussion around how we think about the way we're going to die, how we're going to support other people when they reach their time to pass away. In this conversation, I think you're going to find what I found. When we get to listen to B.J. Miller talk, we are listening to one of the great thinkers of our time. This does not happen often, and I am very proud of this conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. There's a lot in here that needs to be shared and discussed further. Please leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you enjoy this episode as well. It really helps other people find the show. Without further ado, here's BJ Miller. BJ, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. This is a, an interesting moment for physicians to watch another physician who has an important message to to tell, to share, to educate around, to have a moment. And you're having that moment. You have in the last, it feels like 45 minutes or so, 6 million <laughs> TED views, New York Times Magazine, Oprah Winfrey, The Guardian. W what's happening? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all very strange and mostly wonderful. So it kind of got started when I, I no longer, I, I used to work at a place called Zen Hospice Project and uh, I'm no longer there, but, you know, hap happily, um, I had a lot of, I, I learned a lot there and had a wonderful experience there. And um, the, the public thing sort of kicked off because I was in a position there as an executive director to be, you know, out raising money and trying to beat the drum a little bit and just kind of get people talking in some ways strategically for the organization. But behind that, people in the field of hospice and palliative medicine have wondered, you know, for years before me, like, what, you know, <laughs> we're sitting on a subject that affects everybody. It's way, you know, suffering from illness, dying are harder than they need to be. Why don't people talk about this? And so, you know, beyond Zen Hospice Project, we're always in the field, we're always kind of saying yes to just about any invitation to speak on this or that issue. But then, Whatever, whatever reason, things kind of conspired and came together, and it kind of hit another level. Um, and so, a long way to circle back to, to to your question, Mark. I I'm very happy to be around for this moment because I do think I I think that people I think we're getting beyond denial. I think that people are coming to terms with. A, the limitations of healthcare that, that the American medical system is great at some things and is sadly uh, bad at some other things and that the system doesn't work very well. So there's a, there's a public awareness around the, that. 
And then I think there's also waking up that we as a society are aging and dying in record numbers. And most of us are living with chronic illness or know people who are or are caring for people who are. So the subject is no longer exotic. And uh, that is really, really good news for a number of reasons. I would agree with all of that. I also feel like there's a component, though, of like when I was in medical training, finished medical school in 2003, we were starting to build dialogue around this. We were realizing we need a better inventory of how to talk about death and dying, of how to manage suffering, of how to set rational expectations. We banged the same drum, right? We played the same notes for so long, and it almost feels like we needed a fresh start or a fresh look. When I was I was trying to put together all of this, I'm like, what? Why is why is BJ Miller the flag bearer? Why? What is he doing that's different? Because clearly you've captured something. You don't just go on all of these media outlets for no reason. A New York Times Magazine article in the very bottom of it. Now I was a sports writer back in the day, so I like to break apart articles and see how they're constructed. Near the end of the article, right as it's starting to wrap up, there's a comment that was made that I thought captured it, where they described you as having, and I quote them a mischievously counterintuitive style of insight. <laughs> and I thought that kind of wraps it up that you're doing, you're bringing this stuff forward in a very different, probably more engaging, friendly, accessible way. Hmm. Well, that's lovely. I'll take it. <laughs> but, I, mean, I, mean, I do like being, I mean, there is a little mischief in the subject. There's a mischief about sort of being a doctor who doesn't wear a white coat, who goes right. by, there's sort of a non-doctor doctor vibe. Right. But, uh, think, but we're not trained that way. We don't go through training to be no. that doctor. No, no, no. In fact, a lot of this stuff that I've held on to is stuff that generally gets trained out of you yeah. and we're not for the fact that I was a patient and that is what inspired me to go into this work. Yes. I don't think I would have held on, dared to hold on to pieces of myself like I did, not just out of stubbornness, but because of belief that in the end, once you have the skill sets uh, down and uh, in your tool belt, then it really becomes the work kicking it to the next level really becomes about being a good human being. I think I had a, I think I had a head start having been a patient and having been on the receiving end and having the chance to know what really lands with me as a patient and therefore what do I want to cultivate as a doctor, which has a lot to do with the stuff that's not particularly the medical. It's interesting that you identify that lever because the the last guest that I had on Explore the Space is a hospitalist colleague on the East Coast who was a physician who was in a car accident and ended up a patient in her own institution. And she speaks very frankly about those same sorts of things that there's an insight that you get. And she's gone to the same sort of road as well. She's on the patient family advisory council at her institution to say, Hey, look, we are awesome at doing some of this stuff and we are nowhere close to being where we need to be for other parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. When you're speaking with physician audience, or mm-hmm. non-physician audiences, is your approach any different? You know, not I've been not much. Yeah, actually, uh, and, and, and importantly, not much because I, I again I think the the, the fun stuff is t- speaking to the human element. Um, that's in a way what's been a struggle in medicine and uh, in, in society. You know, being a, a vulnerable, complete human being who suffers, who gets sick, who navigates all the shame messages that get thrown your way, 
the message also is about honoring and normalizing all that it means to be a human being. So in, in the end, I think the message ends up being very similar no matter who the audience is. Which you just, is you just nice. said something that I want to break out. The shame message. What mm. Are you referring to something that physicians put out that their patients grab onto that make them feel ashamed or that there's a sense of shame around feeling ill? Dissect mm. that a little bit. So, so I, you know, one of the reasons I got, uh, uh, one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing is because of my experiences, not just as a patient, but as a disabled person. Uh And I learned a lot from my mother who had polio and post polio syndrome. And I've been around disability my whole life and seeing disability as, as a normal human event rather than aberrancy, seeing, uh, the loss, see the creativity that can get spawned by loss the workarounds, the way people get inventive to deal with their circumstances. Um, so I had been fortunate to be around a very positive message on a subject that most people are terrified of or think in negative terms. So I was sort of preloaded for this. And to, to your question, doctors, I mean, you know, again, we both know this doctors, all healthcare is filled with people who really, who, who care. You know, I think we need to, um, th- that's a really important piece of this puzzle. And, but we, but we end up, uh, through training, we inherit a, a vernacular, a language, an approach to people that can cloud that basic human caring thing. So for example, we tend, we in medicine tend to pathologize. So when we see a problem, we call it a, we call, we, we see something, we call it a problem, we even call it an illness or a disease or pathologize it, turn it into something negative, and then we go to war with it. And that, as a convention, can be very helpful to muster, mobilize energy, to get people uh, who have a clear target to your work, etc. Um, but the problem is that we, we confuse reality with our conventions. And so the message a lot of people who are disabled in this country, especially, you know, in the middle uh, – of the, of the 20th century, not so much since the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1991, I believe it was. But we would, in medicine, unfortunately, we would send these signals that you are abnormal, you are pathological. Um, we smear what what's going on at the cellular level uh, onto the person so that I, as an amputee, am no longer part of the club of being a normal person. I am anomalous. I'm an aberrancy. And that's the signal we unwittingly send patients a lot, and that's uh, a, a, a signal that the disabled people have been railing against for a long, long time. I'm not less of a person because I'm disabled. I am normal. Things go wrong. You may be unusual to lose limbs, but you suffer in different ways. So this beating back the the unwitting modes, the unwitting language of separation – that we throw at each other um, is really a piece of this puzzle where disability requires a sort of courage, especially back in the day when you were uh, warehoused, when you were not included, where you had no civil rights per se. It's all, this is all a recent phenomenon. This is all in the last 30 years that this has turned around. But just to be clear, so one piece of the puzzle is, yes, the, met, the healthcare system has sent some uh, gnarly signals to, to, to the public. But beyond that, we people too, we people tend to vilify what we don't understand. 
we tend to make enemies of things that we don't want to be. So who wants to be disabled, right? So, okay, turn it into an enemy so you'll keep it forestalled. So we send each other. It's not just healthcare. We send each other all sorts of signals around this subject. So it sounds like that same journey then is what we want to do for those who are approaching the end of life to say, this is normal. We're all going to yeah. die, right? <laughs> two, yeah. two things that are going to happen. You're going to pay taxes and you're going to die. So yep. let's change the way we think about it. Is that kind of, does that sort of capture the essence of what's happening that, Hey, this is okay, but let's, let's demystify, let's re-engage and let's paint a different picture somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a way of putting it. Um, and I don't, by the way, I think, you know, a lot of people get away with not paying taxes. <laughs> that's I mean, a fair point. <laughs> Um, it is. It has this possibility of being an, an, a, a, a uniting force. It is absolutely inclusive. So, so we. It is an excuse to operate at a different level of justice and social awareness. Yeah. It is a subject that does bind us if we let it. And so, yes, a, the, a way into this subject is what we're trying to change here. You know, we're not. There's there's some things that are fine that just need more attention, but. Right. Um, right. So uh, taking the shame out of it, the stigma out of, uh, of illness and death, um, you know, the worst thing is this sort of secondary and tertiary layers of suffering we heap on each other. Um, so we so in other words, we end up feeling bad for feeling bad, embarrassed to feel depressed, um, embar embarrassed to, to mourn. That's the kind of the, the shame stuff is the thing I'm actively trying to skim off this, the surface here. And then secondarily, I'm trying to also help. Uh, we all want to call attention to things like hospice, fields like palliative care, the good stuff that's already happening that the world just needs more of. We don't need to reinvent a, a lot of a lot of things. Um, I'm also trying to include, if this sort of following the message of total inclusion on the subject, not just all individuals, but other disciplines. So if the message around dying is is not it's not that dying is good or bad, it just is. And then the goal really is to help each other live all the way until you die. Well, then, you know, then all of a sudden the subject is really quality of life, not just dying. It's about living well. Um, and that means supporting each other. That means caring for each other. That means inviting other disciplines in the mix like philosophy, design, the arts. So I'm trying to sort of blow up the field a little bit, trying to engage the public a little bit and trying to get creative juices going. But all of that is behind what you said, which is the general way into the subject is, hey, every, if this happens to everybody, let's not make it harder than it needs to be. Let's yank this thing out of the closet, shine some light on it, and start getting uh, creative. I think that those are all really exciting, obviously. I think, though, I'm, I'm looking at this through the prison that I work within, and that's as a hospitalist. So I'm in the hospital all day. And I think that yeah. we're going to have, as we continue on this journey and we, you know, we peel off all of these old presuppositions and ideas and concepts and change them, the last fortress, like the last wall that we're going to have to overcome is when this happens abruptly, swiftly, and in the hospital, because yeah. it is so difficult in that situation. I almost feel like when that happens, the gap between the providers and the families are almost at their greatest. It's almost like we're on a, on an ice flow and we're sort yeah. of circling each other and neither one of us feels very balanced. We're both a little nervous, not quite sure what's going to happen. And we're trying to get to the middle where we know it's firmer ground, 
but it's really hard to get there. It's slippery. It's cold. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to overstate the metaphor, but man, that's where the real challenge is because you add, uh, you know, more and more variables on what's going on in that moment. Do you see that fortress as well that, you know, once it's happening swiftly, quickly in the hospital setting, that that's a whole other animal to tackle? Yeah, it is importantly different. Uh, I wouldn't say it's wholly other, but it's an, an importantly yeah. different uh, edge of the spectrum. So, uh, you know, and, and to be clear, like my goal, I don't know who, I mean, the goal, I, the goal certainly isn't to make death pretty and fun and easy. It's not, it, it, again, I, I want to, I want to get rid of the, the, the secondary, the, the unnecessary shaming, et cetera, that we do. Yeah. My goal isn't to, my hope isn't that this is just going to be, uh, you know, fun, um, I'm just trying to cut a, a wider cloth, a bigger space to hold all these uh, difficult emotions. So, so that's one clarification, but, yeah. but your point about the hospital. Yeah. So hospitals do amazing work. And as you and I both know, they're, they have their own center of gravity, their own language. They're a, an alternative universe. They are created to explicitly to push back on natural processes. So you are, they are built for acute care, for interventional care. And by interventional, we say we're, we're intervening on mother nature. Right. Not, this is, this is a different muscle and it's a very exciting one. It's a very potent one. I'm alive because of that work. Um, there's a lot of reason to glorify the hospital, but there's also a lot of reason to be clear on what it what it can and should do and what it can't and shouldn't do. And we, you know, the modern hospitals become the church, the school, the clinic. It's, it's everything. People, you know, land in emergency rooms because it's the one place the door doesn't shut. So we ask way too much of our hospitals. So part of this Part of the part of the issue here would be to proportionalize funding, proportionalize our activity, our training, our energy a little bit differently. I don't think we need to diminish the good work that hospitals do. We just need to let them do that work and unburden them around all the chronic uh, chronic disease management and chronic care issues and social issues. Uh, and loneliness issues, you know, all the things that people have been in the hospital for. So part of it is giving the poor hospitals a break and building other systems and other places around the acute care setting. I think that's a really piece of, important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Like I said, what I'm looking for is proportion, proportionality, let, like let the funding and let the energy suit the actual need. Look at the cancer moonshot funding. There's nothing in there for supportive care or palliative care. What the hell? That's this is a this is a contemporary, modern, an enlightened effort, and it's all about fixing the disease, curing the disease, killing it, stamping it out. Well, great if you can do that, but meanwhile, a lot of people are going to suffer and lose that battle, quote unquote. And where is the funding for the support? So, and one of the pieces that we miss again, it's this idea where you know, the cancer moonshot and a lot of the language that you were describing around the way we identify and chase disease. It, it sounds almost like a military campaign, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that comes up, and I'm, I would imagine you've heard the statement as well, is when you're having a difficult conversation, when you're approaching a family or, a, or a, someone that you're providing care for with a difficult diagnosis or bad news or something like that, and they bring up that statement about themselves or their family member or their loved one, that they're a fighter. And that yeah. they, and I think that that statement is honestly, it's one of the most challenging things for us to reconcile ourselves. What do they mean by that? And how do we honor it? 
but also to help them realize that that is a, a, it's a great journey to be on. It's a great way to look at someone. And how do we keep that while we can also recognize that what's happening is something we can't reverse? Yeah. Well, this is where, this is where we need uh, communicators in our, in our medical education. So, I mean, listening, yeah. communicating really is, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but it's probably job one. 100% agree. Yeah. So this is a lot of a message. The issue is of one of conveyance and, um, and not just finding the right words, but the body language, the, the using silences and sticking around to support people and bearing witness, et cetera. So this, but this can be done. And to your, to your point about being a fighter, it, it strikes me as very much related to the, uh, the hope juggernaut. So, you know, a lot of there's data around this, right? So a lot of folks, doctors who sort of admit to not telling their patients the full truth or sort of shading things a little bit, that often comes back to, well, I don't want to take away their hope. And what we've got, what we've learned is I hope, first of all, is not a monolith. It's not just a, it's not the static thing that you either have or you don't. And it's also not one that is, it's not up to us doctors to giveth or taketh away, so we don't decimate people's hope by telling them the truth. We decimate people's hope by abandoning them. And similarly, it's a, so it's a reframe. So when I hear the word hope, I've been trained through palliative care education to say, well, hope for what? That to qualify that is in a huge difference. So like sticking with the warring metaphor. Well, so, you know, Auntie Jane has always been a fighter. So therefore, we want to do full code, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's incumbent upon us when we run, run into that, say, okay, so she's a fighter, right? So she's tough, right? She's willing to put up with a lot, but, um, what would she be most interested in fighting for? If she knew it were that she was going to lose the battle, would she fight for something different? Might she fight for comfort or would she fight for peace of mind for her family? Or would she fight for a moment outside the hospital? So, so much of this stuff is a you know, problem of the language and therefore there's a sort of a language, a rhetorical fix, which is usually a reframe. But that, you know, that, that means the doctor has to have tra training and time and support to do that sort of nuanced work. But it's doable. I've seen it done a gazillion times. So as medicine has become progressively more and more complex and we wrestle with all of the things that everyone knows about that can separate us from patients, that we become more and more specialized, what you just described is that, you know, sort of artist's palette of colors and tools that you can reach to any time and be adaptable and flexible in the moment. That's the stuff that we need to have everyone be ready, facile, and confident in, in deploying, right? Yep. Where is the energy to do that? Well, first of all, we're going to need it coming from a couple different angles. So this is one reason I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you and thankful for the work you do. Cause this is, this is about, you know, you know, I, I don't have all the answers obviously, but us talking about it, you know, maybe there's someone in your audience who will have an idea or a thought, or, you know, this is something we're going to do from a bunch of different angles and no one person's going to do it by themselves. So it's a humongous invitation. Um, so, you know, but one thing from my own field of the, the, the field of palliative care, uh, we have begun to talk about specialist, uh, palliative care versus, uh, primary palliative care. So uh, the, the basic body of knowledge for, for this field has to do with really exquisite symptom management, really keen, uh, nuanced communication skills, 
uh, an ability to see big pictures and coordinate across settings and uh, across vernacular. Um, these are the basic skills of palliative care. And those, you don't need a specialist, board certified, super specialized palliative care clinician to do the bulk of this work. We need to drive these basic tenets deeper and deeper into health, healthcare, edu- medical education, nursing education, et cetera. So we've now, we, now, we now call this pa- uh, primary palliative care. And you will find primary palliative care tenets increasingly in the med school curricula, nursing school curricula, social work, chaplaincy, et cetera. So that's a piece of this puzzle, So which is to name these skill sets but also um, uh, and demystify them, but also not – not run the risk of, of making them more exotic than they actually are. They're kind of fundamental basic things. They just need to be given that station, that status of being fundamental and respected as such. So, so that's, a, that's a huge piece of the puzzle, at least in medical uh, education. And that's happening not fast enough. Um, but slowly there's, there's a little reason for hope, but that's, that's one of the issues that needs that we hit, the, we need to hit the gas pedal on that one. So if then we jump over to the other side and we look at this from the perspective of those who are seeking care or family that just received a life-changing and life-threatening diagnosis, the fact that you have you know 6 million TED Talk downloads and all of these media outlets that are reaching out to you for insight, is that demand for information, education, and empowerment rising on the non-physician, non-provider side? So it needs some organization. And this is personally what I'm trying to, one of the, you know, I'm trying to kind of figure out how to, how to work that. I do feel like I've been given an opening. People, people are listening. So I, I, um, but it's way too common, Mark, that I'll, I'll, I'll give a talk or something and then folks will get turned on to the subject and say, all right, I want to help. Now, what do I do? Mm. And I, and it's, and I, and I, 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 uh, sheepishly have very little, uh, to point them to. There is no organized consumer patient um, uh, advocacy organization. There is no, uh, like they say, there's no Velcro for people's interest to stick to. There are little pieces in, uh, and, 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 and scattered around. But no, we really, this, this, is a, this, this needs some attention too. And this is something I'm trying to figure out what I've been calling the center for dying and living is trying to sort of begin a resource center that can capture all that we already know, what knowledge is out there, get it into a, a collated and curated, you know, uh, accessible place online and begin to sh- chip away at all the suffering that happens because just of a lack of information and a lack of access. So I'd like to start doing that. We need a lot of people working on this one. It's interesting, though, that you say that we need that because it sounds like, you know, we need that seed crystal. And right now, you there's there's only a handful of physicians in the United States that really have the cultural spotlight on them. And it looks like you are rapidly becoming one of them if you aren't already. And I want to ask you, are you, you're right. I agree with you that there isn't that sort of centralized organization that people can go to one website to collect all the information that they need to, where do I go when this has just happened? I feel like everything's out of control. Oh, I know this site because my friend sent it to me on Facebook. I'm going to go there. Mm -hmm. But as this has evolved for you, do you feel comfortable with that? It's a huge, huge undertaking. And there's a lot of scrutiny and a lot of energy and excitement. Do you kind of, on a personal level, do you feel comfortable with that? That's a good question, man. You know, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I 
as a, and especially, you know, in my issues as a disabled person, even before this spotlight, I was very much aware you walk around in this sort of with this, with this silhouette that I have and you get, you just, there's constant projections and, uh, unrealistic expectations and all sorts of assumptions about who you are. And, and, you know, and so one thing I've been struggling with is with this little bit of attention that, that, that kicks that stuff up to scale. So, um, I'm aware, uh, and, and I don't, I'd much rather be, I've always, I've always preferred second place. I've always loved, you know, it's not, I let, let the first place guys have the attention. Second place is pretty dang good and doesn't get, you know, you get to kind of be yourself. And there's something I've always liked underdog. I'd rather, if you want to see me do well, it's, you know, it's when I, I have nothing expected of me. That's when I tend to rise. When there's a lot of pressure, I don't, I don't enjoy that. So, I mean, just personally interesting yeah ask that question it does it is uh, is a little tricky I'm, I'm i'm growing up i'm trying to learn how to work with it it is an opportunity ultimately and i need to see it that way um but a second point is you know one thing this work and my own experiences teach me but especially our our job i mean i'm around uh you know what i call these vicarious deathbed moments all the time where i'm walk, talking to people who have come to the end of their life and I'm listening to them say, well, you know, if I had known, I would, you know, if I had known, if I had thought about this, I would have done X, Y, and Z, you know, in other words, sharing their regrets. I, and it usually often comes down to, I wouldn't have worked so hard. I would have had more fun or I would have told people I love them more, et cetera. So here I am in the name of this subject, this beautiful, glorious combined, this, this conjoining subject. And I run the risk of just becoming this yet another uh, rat on a wheel running around in circles trying to do things that aren't possible. And then I could just find myself in those same regretful shoes despite having so many reasons to know these lessons. So I guess it's another way of saying I need to right-size myself in these things uh, and, uh, and get clear on what I can and can't do and what, you know, and I'll, also this is going to take – in this I, I i only so much any one person can do and so anyway that's a sort of a sampling of, of where my mind goes on that question and it's a, it's an important one for me right now I'm, I'm i'm mulling it carefully so as you said you're one person that's doing this are you finding more coming towards you saying bj i'm in I did a fellowship in palliative care or hey i'm a geriatrician or hey i don't know a thing about this but i'm in yeah and, and yes and i have and it's lovely and you know and I'll, also another sort of uh part of this puzzle is you know there are i point people to uh their local hospice agencies to volunteer or to host a death cafe or if they're interested in medicine i point them to 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 gestate to foment their own interest in palliative care so Sometimes I'm realizing I don't have to do much except for to help me maybe help point someone or um, just reflect with them or be a, have be around for a moment when they're making a decision on their career and help them go down this path, etc. So uh, yeah, I do get that, and it's lovely. Um, it's it's its own responsibility and takes its own time and energy to do so. And this is one of the reasons why I need to. Uh, have an organization underneath me to help me do these things right now all these conversations are a one-off it's just me yeah yeah uh, and i need to kind of reorganize how i do that this um, needs to become scalable well yeah yeah or at least just more efficient and, yes. and also i need to be able to link with other people doing similar work more easily because yeah 
uh, right. Now Just I'm right. reasonably comfortable having conversations around death and dying with patients and these issues that come up, especially in the hospital setting. That being said, you just said something and went right past it. So we got to hit rewind for a quick second. What is a death cafe? Ah, um, so I believe, I believe I should know this. I believe they started in Great Britain, but it's, it's a very simple idea that uh, people would host a death cafe, either a home or a public venue. And, you know, you basically just have people gather around to show up. You can't, you know, by the, by the rules of the death cafe organization, you, you can't, it cannot be a commercial enterprise. So you can't be there inviting people in so that you can tell them about your goods and wares. Um, and you have to serve us some amount of food and you have to host open conversations so that people have a safe place to go and talk. Uh, and there it's a very simple, very basic thing that just about anyone can do. And it's a beautiful way to get people talking and thinking together. You know, I, I, one thing that's clear is the society does have, like we've talked, has an interest in this subject. Denial, I think, is overplayed. I, I just think most people don't have, don't have a vocabulary for it and aren't uh, don't necessarily feel comfortable broaching the subject. So but the second you put out some uh, bunt cakes and some coffee and make a safe uh, safe place to talk, people show up. And so that's that's essentially what a death cafe is. And there are some other organizations like Death Over Dinner or the Dinner Party, um, other organizations that are doing similar work, just getting people gathered in a safe way around a table, around food, and get them talking. And is there a moderator or is it a free form or there's no rule book? I think my sense is, and I think there are a lot of offshoots now, but my sense is there's not much of a rule book and then you can take it any direction you want. And oftentimes they end up becoming advanced care planning sort of charrettes uh, or talking about local resources. But I don't think there's much of a rule book per se. I think someone has to host it and therefore somewhat, you know, and keep things uh, on, on, on course a little bit. But otherwise, no, I think it's pretty freewheeling. That would be a really interesting tool to use to lever this idea of the hospitalist as that final bastion around conversations around death is going further upstream and having that conversation so that people understand what does it mean to come to the hospital critically ill? What does it mean to come to a hospital to die? What does it mean to come to the hospital and get that diagnosis, be informed that this is what we found, these are the implications, this has all happened so fast and your family's not even all here yet and you started your day by going to work. You know, like you, and, and now everything's upside down. That would be a very intriguing way to start that conversation so that because people come into the hospital, their life gets turned upside down literally in the span of seconds, and then it's off to the races. Right. And you're putting your finger on it. I think part of the way these changes are going to be made is. As you know, when someone's in, extre when ex in extremis and family dynamics are at fever pitch and decisions need to be made quickly, you know, a hospital is not a great place to reflect upon your life and make uh, quick decisions about what's most important to you and what you're willing to do to, to live, et cetera. I mean, this, this is – by if you're having that conversation in, in an ICU, in some ways it's too late, in some ways. But as an adjunct though, I mean, it, it's important to, to recognize – the team that's there, the nurses, the providers, the docs, everyone, they they recognize those limitations for the most part, and best efforts are made. It's not perfect, but I think oh. it's important to at least state that everyone knows that, and they will, and best efforts will be made to provide that sort of aid and comfort and patience and time and support. 
Absolutely. I mean, we'd be very clear. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, we should all be very proud of so much of the work that happens in hospitals. Uh, and you're, you're right. But, but most of the time, so that's very true. But a lot of that work would be obviated if we as a society honored how we aged and how we died and how we cared for each other and talked about it right. so that we weren't so likely to be clutching for interventions that aren't going to work that may actually harm us. Uh, when we're just first, the first time in our lives thinking about the value of our life when it's about to slip out of our hands. So yeah, kudos to hospitals, but let's, for all of us as members of society, <laughs> right. work we can do before we land in that ER, um, to help this issue along, to help ourselves die a little bit better and yep. care for each other a little bit better, et cetera, and to unload the hospital staff from having to have these religious philosophical and medical, uh, conversations in a, in a hallway. And what you've just uh, defined are paradigm shifting discussions for humanity. So no big deal, right? That's not a big ask. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so cool. Right. Let's get after that. We're on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and right. It would be, I mean, the, 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 right. And the counterpoint to it's to the, uh, you know, what's the, the quixotic nature of it is the fact that, well, gosh, we're living the alternative. And the other thing for people to appreciate, uh, a lay audience to appreciate is, yes, hospitals and medical people are generally caring and sensitive and will work these things out with you the best, best of their abilities in the hospital and elsewhere. But um, it's also important that people realize that the defaults in the system are generally not what you're going to want. So the default is it's incredibly easy to default your way to an ICU with intubation, et cetera. So it's not – so yes, you can trust your that your physician means well, but you can't necessarily trust the system is going to fill in the blanks for you in the way you would wish them to. The defaults are uh, intensive, acute care uh, at pretty much any cost. So that's that's one issue to, to to state, and that that's a function of the system, not of the people per se. So uh, it does take pushing. You have to you have to will your you have to exercise your will in this mix. So anyway, I wanted to state that. But this, what you're pointing to, yeah, it's a it's a big ask, but it's but it's also one that we're constantly doing haphazardly or otherwise. We are as a species constantly evolving our way forward. And the best we can do is to come to terms with the reality in front of us, learn lessons, and exercise those lessons while we're still around. In this way, some collective wisdom gets perpetuated. And I do think that this is that we're sitting on because of the 80 million baby boomers, et cetera, and all the need to change that we've already laid out. This does feel like an evolutionary subject. So if we can get beyond our fight or flight uh, response to death and lean into it a little bit, and start having a relationship with the subject and start realizing we die much sooner than the deathbed moment and start uh, loving each other uh, through all these processes and honoring grief and loss and the love that that portends. I do think all these things will get better for us at the end of our lives, but more excitingly, we'll live better meanwhile for it. So as quixotic as this, as this task may sound, well, the alternative sucks and we're kind of living the alternative. And it's so we, we're going to be working on this either haphazardly or concertedly. And we're sitting on a subject that everyone stands to benefit from. And so therefore, it makes a lot of good sense to, to, to work on it. So these are so, obviously these paradigm shifting massive questions. 
where's the pushback coming from, right? It's easy to think that everyone's going to agree and everyone will be on board and it's a, a great moment and we'll have our meetings and our conversations and it'll all get better. But where there must be pushback coming from somewhere. Well, sure. Um, I think some people would just say, look, talking about death is uh, that's what people, the worried well do. That's what rich white people do. Uh, these existential philosophical issues, you know, no one has, not, not everyone has the, uh, the luxury of thinking about those things. That's one pushback I've, I've, I've heard. Um, I mean, just to start there, I totally, I think it's condescending as hell to say, uh, poor people don't think about the value of their lives. Poor people don't think about death. I mean, I think that, that I think that's cr- crazy. Um, I think it's actually condescending to say that. They may, we may have different sort of uh, word choice around some of these issues, but so I don't, I don't buy that this is a rich person subject. The second pushback I've gotten is, well, look, we are hardwired, fight or flight. We're not as a people, we are not going to learn how to face mortality. It is something that's in our bones to not do that. Uh, I would say, okay, sure. If we're dealing with the old paradigm of you live well, you live healthy until you get sick and within short order, you're dead. And that dying was much more of an acute event. Now, more and more of us are going to be dying from chronic illnesses. So you're going to be given your diagnosis. The thing that's going to kill you, you will know years in advance now. Thanks to technology and other things, we have opened a protracted relationship with our own mortality. So we're going to have to exercise some, develop some new muscles around these fight or flight instincts. Uh, You're going to have a chronic relationship with the thing that will take your life. So just like anything else you got to live with, it generally pays to work with it, not against it. So, um, so I don't buy the fight or flight excuse to not think about it. And then thirdly is like, yeah, right. We can talk about death, but within five minutes, you're talking about living well until you die. And that's a message that pretty much anyone can get on board with. And there's no, nothing in me or anybody else that should, I don't want to be ramming uh, mortality into people's faces. I just want to be there for them when they turn their attention to it. I want to help reward people for paying attention to this subject, not uh, uh, actively uh, retard conversation or repel people from thinking about it. Like we can't mandate beautiful deaths for everybody, but we can certainly try to get the man-made barriers out of the way that, that gum up the system on your way to a decent death. So, these are some of the frame shifts that I, that's some of the pushback I've gotten and my own pushback on the pushback. And they're all very, they're fair points to make. I, I agree with you that the ones where you add an adjective before people, whether it's rich, white, or poor, or whatever, when you're talking about death, it's not really germane because it applies to everybody universally without exception. So there's no reason to qualify it. Uh, that being said, I think it's important to at least right now in this phase to be open to the pushback and let people kind of have their say. And then we have to move, move on because there's, there's work to do. Absolutely. And again, with this total, this message of absolute inclusion, like, Hey, let's learn from each other. There have been, you know, we've been dying for a long time. You know, there are other cultural approaches to death there. I mean, let's open this thing up. So we really are learning. And so this will require a robust dialogue. Uh, and and we got to watch our medical uh, motivations. We got to watch the hyper educated bent that comes with medicine, etc. 
Um, but there are ancient cultural traditions around this for us to learn from, etc. So yeah, let's. I I I, I want to open up the valves, not just so that people hear me. As exciting or even more exciting is to open up the valves so that we hear from people. Um, this is. Like I say, this is an ancient subject, so there's got to be a lot. Uh, there should be a lot of stuff flying through the air around this. It feels like you have very rapidly become the conduit by which we are going to. This information is going to move, whether it's from the past, drawing from lessons from other cultures, from other eras, drawing from lessons from people around us, from our current communities, drawing from what we anticipate is going to happen with healthcare. That's going to flow through you. You've positioned yourself that way. And it's a huge ask, but it's an extraordinarily exciting journey. And I think that it's pretty clear that you're on that path now because everyone's reaching out and saying, BJ, where are we? What's going on? How do we keep this moving? How do we keep talking about it? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I will definitely – thank you. I mean, I think that uh, to whatever degree that is um, – uh, do I ever agree you meant that flatteringly? I'll take, I'll take it. There's something I am situated in a particular position to, to work with this. So uh, there's yeah, no but, amount of that statement that was in any way a backhanded compliment or not a compliment. I guess yeah. what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say when I say that kind of gets back to what we were talking about before, right? Physicians have to take, just like anyone, you got to take care of yourself before you take care of other people. Yeah. Almost that, Hey, it's important that we're all aware of what we're asking you to help guide us on. And that you're aware that, man, this has taken off and you're having a moment, but this is no 15 minutes. This is on. This is, this is the path. Yeah. It, there is something that, that I keep waiting for it to, to pass over, but it, it, it does seem to keep going. And, and, and I, and I accept the charge. I, this is I always felt like a life's work. And if it helps one person or a million people, it's less that it's, it's immaterial. I just believe in this work. I believe in this, uh, in these thoughts. I believe in the continuous learning and, uh, the curiosity that the subject brings with it. So I don't have to fake it ever. Uh, I just got to watch my proportions to the rest of the world. And like I say, if I do my best and a couple people benefit, all right. If, uh, many millions do all right. But one thing's for clear. One thing's for sure is I, I shouldn't confuse, uh, this again, I, I need to be transparent and a pass through. I'm a, sort of a prism on a subject that's way, way bigger than me. And people have been doing a lot of good work around this subject way longer than I have. And so I'll accept some amount of responsibility with that. But I also know that the subject is ginormous and we and there are a lot of other people been chipping away at it. And we need a lot more people to join the, the mix, too. The work that you're doing is extraordinary. It's incredibly exciting. We all want the best for what you're doing because that's going to help us have the best possible life and the best possible death. So the work that you're doing needs to continue and it's an extraordinary journey that you're on. I'm delighted that you came on the show and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about all of this with me. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure, my friend. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.